Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. The scripture reading this morning is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. But we must always give thanks for, to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. For this purpose he called you through our proclamation of the good news so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and through grace gave us eternal comfort and good hope, comfort your hearts and strengthen them in every good work and word. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So today we're gonna to talk about eschatology and end things. It's what every pastor wants to preach on. If you didn't notice the sarcasm, I apologize. Um, it, Kate ended uh, last week by quoting um, a character in the best exotic marigold hotel, uh, a motion picture uh, that talks about uh, a hotel that is uh, in the process of becoming um, and uh, some English or British pensioners that come to stay. Now, um, the young um, owner of the hotel um, is often correcting things that aren't right, and the pensioners are unhappy that things are not right, and so he regularly says, everything will be okay in the end, and if it's not okay, rejoice because it's not the end. Everything will be okay in the end, and if it's not okay, relax. It's not the end. I think that really works well for our understanding of end times as Wesleyan Christians. Uh, since about 1995, uh, the whole Western church has been consumed with this idea of left behind, uh, this kind of rapture theology that comes out of uh, dispensationalist circles, uh, mainly advocated first by John Darby back in the 19th century. Um, the left behind books, if you haven't been living um, in the world. Um, started in 1995, there are 16 best-selling books. Uh, they were released up until 2007. Um, there are three major films that have been released, and if you're not a book reader or a movie watcher, hey, hey, they have three different uh, video games that you can play out of the uh, series. 
I, I remember when Left Behind came out. I read the first book. I was a young associate pastor. I had uh, hair and I was half my size and um, I was right out of seminary and I thought I often had the right answer, especially because the senior pastor, he hadn't been to seminary in at least 20 years. Um, so I was reading the book and, and I became really upset about three chapters in. If you've read the book, you might know why. Because of all the people that are raptured into heaven, one of the ones that didn't get it was the associate pastor. I thought, that's not right. Uh, um, so when we turn our eyes towards uh, Second Thessalonians, towards uh, eschatology and end things, oftentimes around us in the culture, it's about this anxiety, this worry, that somehow right at the end, there's gonna be a technicality and we're not gonna be able to go to heaven. Uh, th this idea that uh, it is a mystery around what we're supposed to do to be in good standing with God. So safe to say that um, Wesleyan Christians have never really invested much into rapture theology. Uh, rapture comes from uh, the Latin word raptus meaning to seize, um, often most well represented from 2 Thessalonians chapter four, when the trump shall sound and the dead in Christ will rise. Let me read it a little bit more specifically. First Thessalonians chapter four. Uh, For the Lord himself, with a cry command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's interesting that um, one of the reasons why we don't put a lot of stock into rapture theology is the recognition that the pedigree of rapture theology is it's not very long. Uh, it was mid-19th century when uh, John Darby, an Irish uh, theologian, kind of gathered together with an idea of synthesizing all of the end times scriptures into a proper narrative that would give uh, uh, indication to people about how best to live. Um, his uh, dispensationalist uh, brand of end times um, at some places uh, goes against the grain of scripture, at other times it goes against the grain of theology. And in many ways, it teaches us that what's here is not important. It's about what's there. But yet God has left us with this. Uh, this as a place to move, this as a place to uh, care for the least and the last and the lost. It is here where the Pentecost uh, moment happened, where we were filled with the Holy Spirit. It was here uh, when Jesus was crucified that he was uh, resurrected in the flesh, not as a ghost or an apparition. That there is so much about here that is important, but yet we feel dominated by anxiety and worry. Uh, one example of that is uh, the reading from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. It's kind of the classic um, end times gospel passage. We often refer to it as the little apocalypse. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. 
I mean, it sounds a whole lot like rapture, right? Uh, I mean, th there'll be people driving cars. Uh, hopefully, you know, the person driving the car that you're riding in will not be right with Jesus because, uh, heaven forbid, they get raptured right out of the car seat and you're stuck trying to drive from the passenger side. One will, two will be together, one will be taken, and one will, leave, uh, one will be left. Two people working in the field, one will be taken, and the other will be left. Do you think of taken as a negative word? Like, taken, you know, like you're going somewhere down below. Uh, or is taken something that is a positive connotation? Sure, we could think of taken, right? People get taken, kidnapped, um, held hostage, right? All of those um, images and uh, uh, illusions uh, can come out of the word taken. But listen to the scripture passage. It begins by saying, for as the days of Noah were, Right? And, and the, the conversation is, everybody was living life, but God called Noah to take some of them into the ark. And that those outside knew nothing of what was going on, and the floods came, and they all perished. But those who were taken were safe in the ark. Isn't it interesting that the little apocalypse, this Matthew chapter 24, makes us feel as if that, there, that God is a boogeyman, that, that, that God is out there, and if we aren't right, we'll get taken. But in reality, being within the confines of God's saving grace is a form of being taken as well. So when we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, when the trump sounds, the dead in Christ will rise and we'll meet him in the skies. I think that uh, post John Darby's dispensationalism and post left behind uh, kind of imagery, we think here that Paul is talking specifically about a rapture. That, that at the end of all days, uh, Jesus will come in the skies, that those who have died will uh, sp uh, spring from their graves, that the rest of us will meet him in the sky, and we will all go to heaven, and whoever's left here is going to have a really hard road to hoe. But that seems to go against so much uh, of the images that were present for Paul as he wrote this, and also uh, the rest of Scripture. When we look at Paul, I think he's looking at three specific images uh, that he's trying to capture uh, here in this passage of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, first, I believe Paul is calling back to the image of Moses, right? That as Jesus comes in the sky, it is much like Moses coming down from the mountain, right? Moses goes to the top of the mountain, Exodus chapter 20. Uh, there he communes with God. Uh, he um, uh, writes down the Ten Commandments and begins to walk down the mountain. And as he comes down the mountain, little does he know that the Israelites have decided to have a party. You see, God, uh, Moses has been away a long time, and so uh, they've decided, hey, uh, let's gather all the gold and make us an idol, because we're a little bit concerned that Moses is never going to come back. And so as Moses comes down the mountain, coming down, right, Jesus coming down out of the skies, um, to see what the people have been up to uh, in his absence, he finds that things have all gone awry, right? Maybe that's an image 
that Paul is using as he talks about the trumpet sounding and Christ coming in the skies. I also think that Paul is um, using a little bit of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, uh, to talk about what might be happening and what might be going on and the characteristics that God has. In Daniel, uh, there are a number of places where faithful people were put in charge and their faith was put to a test, right? Daniel in the lion's den, right? And God locked their jaws and didn't even have a scratch on them, right? That there's an image here for Paul in saying that even when things are difficult, that Jesus, that the Son of Man will come and vindicate us from our enemies and call us together to escape the persecution and to be present with Jesus. Third, I think Paul is using a, a very common uh, illustration. Um, you know, we, we tend to get from left behind and from Darby, the idea that Jesus shows up, the trump sounds, we all spring up and we head out to heaven. But in ancient days, when a king was returning to his territory, if he was returning in peace, he would ride on a donkey. And he would ride as a parade in the donkey all the way into the town. But the people would meet him outside the gates. As soon as they saw that the king was coming, the tradition was to go and meet the king and to escort the king in. We see this painfully present in the story of Palm Sunday. Right? Some of us wonder why in the world is Jesus riding on a donkey? Is it because the enterprise rent uh, a um, pack animal didn't have any stallions and all that was left was a donkey? No, it was tradition. It was um, what would happen, right? When we think about the ways in which if the president were to visit or the governor or an elected official, what are the traditions and habits and rituals that happen around that? Well, for Paul's people, for the day and age that Paul lived in, the emperor, when he shows up outside the gates, people would spot him, go to him, and escort him in because it was a good day. So when we think about uh, the idea of the rapture, this mixed metaphor tends to get lost on us, especially post-Darby and left behind. You see, uh, it's almost as if Paul is suggesting uh, a very uh, specific thing that we do, right? Imagine that you have a loved one who's been out of town for a long time, say a year, maybe even overseas, maybe serving in the military, deployed in harm's way. When they come home, do you just wait at home for them to arrive? Sit in the easy, lazy boy? No, no, you, you go. You go to the airport, you go to the terminal, you, you make uh, banners, have you ever seen this before? Banners and excitement, every member of the family is there and there is a great celebration when that long lost person has come home. Now, what Left Behind and Darby is suggesting that if we live in the dispensationalism, then we go to the airport, we welcome them home, and the minute they get on soil, we go, good job, but we pick up our bag and we get on the next plane to someplace else. You see, if, if Jesus has come back, why do we then think it's a free get out of jail card or it's a VIP ticket to someplace else? Why do we get the impression that this place is just a place we pass through? 
It's not a place that we invest or spend time. Genesis chapter one and two talks about the creation being good and about Adam and Eve being stewards over the earth. That's an important thing. Why would God change God's mind? We go to the end of the book, Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had passed away and I saw the new Jerusalem, uh, the city coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard the voice of God say that that, uh, there will be no pain, no death, no crying for the first things have passed away. Why do we believe that those first things must be everything part of this earth? You see, God didn't create the earth just to dispose of it later on, but rather there are good things about the earth. Genesis chapter one, uh, God created and said it was good. God created and said it was good. Yeah, there is that whole fall, uh, original sin, uh, Adam and Eve and the apple, but he doesn't go, I'm done with it. Even with Noah, yeah, there's some imperfections with the creation, but he doesn't do away with all of it. He saves Noah and his family. Why do we think that when Jesus shows up, it's a ticket out of here? That if we've uh, dotted our I's and crossed our T and showed up, had perfect attendance in church, that when the trump shall sound and the dead in Christ will rise, we get a ticket out of here and the rest of you have to figure out how to defeat the Antichrist. What a strange method. You see, Methodists have never been the kind of people uh, who speculate about tomorrow. But we are the kind of people who figure out how to invest in the today. Um, It's kind of like Mark Twain says, um, the things that worry me about the Bible are not the things that I don't understand. The things that worry me about the Bible and keep me up late at night and make me to lose sleep are the things I perfectly understand. One of those me maybe being uh, the story of the sheep and the goats, uh, where uh, Jesus uh, talks about um, those who uh, cared for him, fed him when he was hungry, sheltered him when he was homeless, um, visited him when, when he was sick. Those were the sheep and the others were the goats. And, and they asked, Lord, when did we? When did we do that? We don't remember doing that for you. And he says, whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. You you see, that's a pretty clear piece of scripture, but instead we want to try and figure out uh, all of the different imagery in Revelation, which, you know, this is an attack helicopter, and this is the bear, that's Russia, and over here, here's America and the eagle, and right. It's like how Lindsay had like a direct line for what the end of the world would look like. That's 20 years ago, and it still doesn't seem like he was right. When we look at just where we are, right, when we recognize that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead and that we will be the second, third, and fourth fruits, that when Jesus is risen from the dead, he doesn't come as an apparition or as a ghost, he comes with flesh, right? He sits with Peter on the shore and says, Peter, do you love me? If so, feed my sheep. What are they doing while they're having that conversation? Eating breakfast. You know, if, I, you know, if, if Jesus didn't love the world, then I guess there's no need to have breakfast, right? It's not like through the Gospels, Jesus kind of walked 10 feet off the ground and said, hey, disciples, you might want to go get some food because you're all human and such. But no, our Christology believes that he is 100% human and 100% divine. I know that doesn't make mathematical sense, but it's true theologically. He is all of both. And, And so why? Why in the second coming? Why would Jesus show up in the clouds and say, Come on, guys, let's go. 
I mean, this is the place. This is where um, the Holy Spirit came in Pentecost. Why would we then be pulled to someplace else? I believe when you look at uh, the doctrines of new creation, of resurrection, even the very sacraments that we'll celebrate in a little bit, right? Uh, we, we don't talk about it needs to be special juice and special bread. I, I know some of you think that Jesus used Hawaiian bread for communion, but it's not true. But it's common everyday elements because even the common everyday element can be used as a sign and a symbol of a visible grace of an invisible spirit of a movement in our lives. I recently got invited to join a Bible study as a participant. They actually told me, we don't want you to lead. And I said, great, when is it? Friday mornings at 5.30. Oh my goodness. You really have to love Jesus to get up at 5.30 to study the Bible uh, uh, on Fridays. I've been going for a number of weeks now, and it's a wonderful group, a group of men who read Bible together, who uh, share prayer concerns, and they always bring the best breakfast, right? It's a, you know, breakfast taco from, yeah, and, uh, or it's a croissant sandwich from Donut Haven, right? That's one E short of heaven. Right, it's a wonderful chance to read scripture and to learn and to grow. One of the gentlemen um, at the Bible study this last Friday, we were talking about um, kind of comfort and peace. And he says, you know, my daughter, when she was young, uh, she would read voraciously. She would read sci-fi, fantasy. She would read Nancy Drew, mystery. It didn't matter, she loved reading. But before she would ever start reading a book, she would turn the book over. She would open to the last chapter and she would read the last chapter. You see, she didn't want to commit her life and her time to reading something that was going to end in a way that she didn't like. So she always read the last chapter. And in doing so, she could fully commit herself to reading that book, enjoying it, and seeing it come to fruition the way the ending was. Now, see, that seems kind of strange to me. I mean, isn't the whole idea of Nancy Drew is to kind of get surprised by the ending? But he said, no, she loved knowing how the story ended. Well, um, I'm sure this was a number of decades ago, but at the age of 23, he shares uh, that she died of cancer. And that having been raised in the church and a devoted disciple of Jesus Christ, he also knew that she knew how the story ends. That it isn't about anxiety and worry. Um, you know, did I hear the trumpet? Am I gonna get to go? Do I have to be buried facing the east? What all do I have to do to get that special ticket out of here? But to recognize that the God we serve loves us. That Revelation 21 says he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. I believe that endings matter. I believe that endings matter more than beginnings. That knowing how things end allows us to begin with the end in mind. And so as people who might worry and wonder about eschatology and end things, maybe we should flip the book over, read the last chapter, and know about the character and love of the God that we serve. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Friends, Chapelwood United Methodist Church exists to help ourselves and others take their next step in their faith journey with Christ. 
I want to encourage you, as we've been laying the foundation of this we believe, uh, to then be thinking towards our next uh, worship emphasis, which is around parenting. I wonder if there's somebody uh, in your sphere of influence uh, who might enjoy a practical, uh, light-hearted, but yet useful uh, treatment of the Gospels with regard to parenting. Uh, we'll be looking at that over the next uh, couple of weeks during the month of September. Uh, I wonder where is God leading you to take a next step? There are opportunities for small groups, for service, uh, and for leadership here in worship. Uh, I hope that you'll be listening to how God is calling you and accepting that invitation. If today's the day that you'd like to join this congregation, we'd love to have you. You're welcome to walk down during the uh, closing song, Standing on the Promises, that we're about to sing. Uh, and we would love uh, to have you as part of the church family here at Chapelwood. Um, why don't we uh, join together, join hands for our closing benediction. Almighty God, we give thanks that the end of the book is one of comfort, love, and trust. We look forward, Lord, to greet you outside the gates, to welcome you in, and to see the work that you'll continue to do amongst us. Send us out into the world to be your hands and feet to a world who needs care and love and trust. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.